welcome to An Eye on the Future. In this episode, we discuss the power of the mind and its role in teaching and learning. I'm joined today by Brent Gregory from the University of New England. Brent is a chartered accountant with extensive experience in business management and growth. Prior to entering academia, his key area of research related to the attributes of successful business, and in particular, the key success factors for their owner-operated businesses. As a result, he has devoted much of his professional career to guiding business on how to operate their businesses to better achieve their goals. He has also served on numerous regional development and community organisations. Brent, thanks for coming on the show. A pleasure, Kaz. I want to get into some questions about your teaching, uh, but first, can you tell me a bit about your dad and how he influenced your interest in the power of the mind? Part of my real interest in the power of the mind, I guess, come because of the way I brought up. I had a family that was a very uh, strong believer in the power of the mind. That was something about our family that was um, especially coming from my father, who uh, he was a, a plumber, effectively, a, a, a fitter and turner. Um, and he did a lot of sports coaching. That's, um, but one of his potential career paths was a stage hypnotist. He did, uh, in fact, get op, op, uh, offered an opportunity to tour the US okay. with hypnosis. Mm. Um, but, that's, but if he'd done that, he, uh, that's probably a bit like my story of um, meeting um, someone and changing where I was from, you know, he, he met someone and he was in Newcastle and changed his direction and decided no, he got the time in life where he wanted to, to do mm-hmm. something different. But he did. Um, and look, that, there's some old paper clippings and stuff, you know, he's, um, I, I'd see a lot of uh, hypnosis in my home. Um, yep. You know, we was a family, we did have a fair few parties um, mm. And often in terms of parties, people want to see my dad hypnotise people. Um, he he used it in sport. Um, and so I, did I learn? I certainly got a lot of the power of the, the feeling of the power of hypnosis from him. Um, he educated me about some things, but said, you've got to go away and learn this yourself, which is, you know, how I got to NLP was studying hypnosis. Uh, um, and he says, but I, I, I'll teach you some really important things, but there's a basic rule about the stuff I will teach you. You can only use it for the benefit of others, yep. um, not for your own benefit. He says, cause karma will bite your ass um, if you use it for yourself. So that that's clearly... Yeah, and I've I've stuck to that. I don't karma biting my ass. Karma's been been pretty good to me, um, so yeah. you know I'll um, stick to that. And some some uh, um, I can't even think of the terms now. It's been that long since I've been um, in hypnosis. He said you've got to be really aware in hypnosis. There's things he said of, of crucial stuff uh, as be before you hypnotise someone, you really need to know what outcome they need, yep. and, and and you 
which he clearly didn't do at parties, though effectively he probably do, did do at parties. Um, you, but because he, there were people he knew, so. Um, but you need to invest a considerable amount of time of knowing what outcome that person needs. It's not just, um, and a, part, a subgroup of that, I could use that, is part of that as being aware of what the secondary gains are. And what are also the secondary gains of that person and the environment yep. in, in which they live. Um, and there is a, a quite famous example um, of him for that. And he explained a, a story about that where he did um, a, actually in, um, I guess, early 50s in Newcastle in a show we did there, um, he got someone who had been in a wheelchair for a considerable amount of time to get up and to walk. Mm. Um, well, I guess now we we know that differently because people can walk in a wheelchair. You know, a lot of people that are in wheelchairs can walk. So, but but um, but I think this this person could not walk. They're in a wheelchair. Mm. Of course, they could not walk. Well, they got up and they walked unaided. But he, he said he'd been working with that person for a fair while. Um, thought he knew that was what was there, but this was a big shot. This was a thing that that probably got him to move out of hypnosis. He got attacked by that person's wife. Hmm. Um, you think, wow, it's done something so great for this person. And I, I still have a very clear image. I can't remember the details, and um, I think it was uh, one of my uncles. Uh, telling me about this of my this lady coming at my dad with an umbrella um, about that and but the reason was and here's the secondary gain um, she, he, he didn't look widely enough there was a secondary gain is that her whole life was built around supporting him and then all of a sudden he had destroyed her world mm. so we might think of that of making better um, she wasn't included in part of the process. Um, so it was a part of, it, it was effectively destroying her world. And he, he, he didn't, he didn't cater for that. He didn't do the, in effect, we'd call it a due, due diligence now. Um, so one of the, the processes that, you know, I worked through in that thing is what I call an environmental analysis. So it's, you know, what is your environment? What's the, um, and, you know, what, what's going to happen if you do this? Now, if, if we go through this and you get, what's going to happen if we do this? That's a really important thing to know. Um, what's not going to happen if we do this also as well, because that'll change. Um, what's going to happen if we don't do this? Yep. You know, what's going to be the world? Maybe that should be the first one. And what's not going to happen if we don't do this? And, and yeah, that, people do that just like you just did then. It's a really powerful question in a sense is um, as people just try to process what does that in fact mean um, is, is where you start to get some real clues of what's going on um, and how we do that because that's, that's something where, and, and it's involved, where a bit of time would be spent. So, um yeah, it, it, it is something that has um, shaped me a fair bit in, in terms of my values, yep. uh, in terms of the power of the human mind, 
in terms of understanding why uh, people behave the way they do um, and understanding, you know, how we tap more into our power of our mind, um, how people could behave differently. So it's been a, a really significant driver, which, you know, is why I went down the area of NLP. Um, and it's probably also why I was able to get probably a fair bit more out of NLP than a lot of people that go down there. I wasn't a, a naive participant. You know, um, yeah. Well, one thing I, I clearly learned from hypnosis and for NLP is people don't tell the truth. Um, and it's not actually a bad thing. Idea took me a, you know, you think honesty is so important, but people don't necessarily not tell the truth because they're trying to be bad or despicable or deceive people. Um, sometimes they may not just know what the truth is. That's why you've got to spend so much time working out what it is. Um, uh, they, or they don't want to articu articulate what the truth is. Yep. You know, they, don't, they, they don't want to face up to it. Um, and, and that's, that, that's, that's changed a fair bit too on how I look at people generally. And, and, you know, cause some of the skills that NLP can particularly give you, um, is the ability to ha have some ability to get a sense of what's going on in someone's mind. Um, and, and if nothing else, just cause you've got improved sensory acuity, um, and yeah, you know, can I read someone's mind? No, um, but there'd be certain situations in which I would have a clearer idea of what people were thinking than the average person would. Uh, there's also times I'm absolutely ignorant to that, and I can think of plenty of examples of that too of people with no, none of that that have said, you know, Brent, I'm just. I can remember sitting in a team meeting one day of about 20 people and, and someone told me something about two people that I was so shocked about. Mm. And not only was everyone else there not shocked about it, because that was also obvious to them, what they were most shocked about was that I hadn't seen it. Mm. So, you know, while I say I have improved sensory acuity i have improved sensory acuity in certain circumstances not generally so now i do think another thing that should be i've come to realize about hypnosis and why we need to know something about hypnosis and the power of suggestion is to one level we're all sort of hypnotizing people all the time ourselves mm in a very small way. It's, you know, um, if I could think of example, you know, you're working in a team and, you know, you say you're all working in the one area and, you know, someone comes in and you said to them, oh, did you have a bad night? Or, and then, you know, someone else, they run into a bit later, say, oh, you're not feeling very well. Or, um, oh, you're a, bit, you're a bit sick at the moment. Now, they might have been feeling perfectly okay but by the end of three people bringing up to them, they could be very well searching their body mm. for, uh, yeah, I do have a bit of a sniffle. I've got, I do have that headache. Um, and, and, you know, that's a, a crude example of how hypnosis in a sense can impact on the people around us 
Um, so having a, an awareness of hypnosis will make you a better citizen in a sense that you're not giving people the wrong suggestions. Yeah. It will probably also make you more alert to when you see the certain structure of some ads on television yeah. or on the radio or of saying, here's this certain hypnotic pattern that's been applied, you know, stay alert. Um, so, yeah, I, I think an awareness of hypnosis is, is valuable for everyone. Um, but, you know, you want to go down that path and, um, and, and that's 24 hours and we're still going. So, so we'll get started with um, a question related to your teaching. So you've recently been awarded some teaching awards. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Do you have any tips and tricks, perhaps something from your background in neuro-linguistic programming um, that you'd like to share? Um, well, in some ways, it's also an outcome of my research because uh, my research has had a, um, a significant focus on um, how people learn accounting better. Um, that's been a, a, a pretty big thing for me. And yeah, NLP um, has, has played a pretty significant influence in that area. So I might, um, probably not a lot of people will know that much about NLP. And NLP has its strengths and, a weak, and its weaknesses. Um, it claims it can do a lot of things that it probably can't. But nonetheless, it, it does have a lot of strengths. Um, it was developed by uh, John Bandler. Hold on. Again, by Richard Bandler and John Grinder. Um, and basically what they did was, in a sense, pirated other people's work. So they went and had a look at a lot of people they thought were experts in their field. Um, so Milton Erickson, um, for instance, uh, he was a, a pretty well-known um, hypnotherapist, and that's probably what led me into NLP because I started down the hypnotherapy path. Um, Gregory Bateson was an anthropologist. Virginia Satir was a, uh, a family therapist. And, you know, there was a, there's, a, there's a quite a list of people. He looked at what they did, um, attempted to model what they did, and they summarised all that in what they called neuro-linguistic programming, in some ways, how the language of the mind programs the body um, to do things. Um, so the, an advantage it has is you can pick up a wide range of knowledge in a quick area. So you could study hypnosis, you could study family therapy, you could study anthropology, um, but all those things are pretty big fields in their own right. And um, what they've effectively done is cherry picked. So it, it gave not an in-depth view, but a pretty good overview of um, how people think and how people operate. If, there's probably two advantages. One, I would see from my perspective, if you think of, of this, you've got a whole pile of books um, and they're just scattered yep. around the floor of your office. And you then get a bookshelf. And in fact, the bookshelf is also labeled for you. So you can take those books and you can put, put them in the bookshelf and probably put them in a pretty useful place. 
and when you get a new book, you know exactly where to put it in your bookshelf. And if you're missing some books from your bookshelf, you get a sense of where those books are missing. And that's really what NLP has done for me. It's provided me with a structure for my thinking and a, a way um, to identify what I need to know. Because it, it, it become pretty significant in accounting. Because, uh, you know, the starting point with accounting, you produce a set of financial uh, accounts and you give them to someone in business. And, yeah, the first thing they'll say is, well, not always, but, but pretty much it was my experience. So what? What does this mean? What do I need to do about it? So the, the, the role of the accountant, um, or depending on which way you go, but especially the way I went, very quickly moved away from doing the pure accounting information to saying, well, what does this mean? Uh, what do I have to do about it? So the, my role in business become very much helping people firstly worked out what they want. And NLP was exceptionally good for that in terms of looking at values um, and looking at goals and then helping people develop the actions they needed to achieve the, the goals that they've set. And NLP was also very good for that. Uh, other things that did for me exceptionally well was uh, improve my sensory acuity. So there's a number of things and that's probably the hypnosis element as well. So if you're trying to um, help someone go into a trance, you, it, it really helps if you mirror uh, their, as much of them as you can. So that's their physiology, um, the, you know, the structure of their language. Yep. Um, so that means you've got to pay a lot more attention to, you know, how is someone breathing? What's happening to their skin tone? Uh, what's, what are their eyes doing? Uh, what type of words are they using? How are they structuring their sentences? What's the surface meaning of what they're saying? What's the deep meaning of what they're saying? Uh, so that that actually took a fair bit of energy. Um, but they're, they're some of the things that NLP help you do. They, they um, It helped me understand people a lot better. Um, and I'm sure there's other ways it could have even been better still. Uh, and it helped me support people to achieve what they want. Sometimes you ask a question, Kaz, and you think, I didn't really need an answer that long, but anyway. Well, I find the topic of NLP quite interesting, so I'm happy to keep talking about it for a bit. Well, um, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a, probably some other things I'll say about NLP, which you, you asked specifically about teaching, which has been incredibly helpful for teaching in terms of my way of thinking. It has helped me develop some models and some frameworks, uh, having that structure is the concept of an internal representation. So, um, and that has a lot of parallels with accounting, which, you know, uh, accounting is uh, a representation of what's happening in a business. So you pick up the books and you have a representation of what's going on in the business. You know, is it profitable? Is it not? And you can drill down into that information. Um, if it's not profitable, why is it not profitable? You know, what are the, is it not making the income it should be or is it spending too much? And if it's not making the income, what's causing that? But And the financial statements are your representation of what's happening in the business. 
but it is also important to realize that that representation is not the business. Um, and, and so you need to understand what that representation is, and then you need to make that a richer re representation. So the financial statements by themselves uh, are not that useful. So you need to do some ratio analysis. So you'll need to, you know, what, what's the, the relationship? And then you'll need to start measuring some non-financial things. And um, in a business that could even be, you know, th things we start to measure when we're doing research in that area is how many hours a week would people work? Uh, what type of exercise would they get? Uh, did they set goals or not? Uh, stuff about their staff structure. So in order to make that representation richer, you, you need to, to make an effort to do that. Hmm. Um, and, and that, see, you've asked one of these questions, and that, where that's true for, for an academic, um, for students, you've got to think about what, how they're internally representing what you're giving to them. What's their internal representation and what will that cause them to do? Um, to, how, how will that cause them to act? Uh, so if... Uh, in, in designing any activities in um, for someone to learn things, you firstly think what outcome do you want? So what activity, well, what outcome do I want? So how would someone, uh, what type of internal representation would someone need to make in order to carry that out? Because, and it'd be more true now than it was uh, when I started in academia, uh, we're certainly fighting for the headspace. Head, head of students. So we really need to think about how we construct the activities we do so that that A has a chance to create any internal representation at all and then it will create the right type of internal representation. And we also need to appreciate same with business that the map is not the territory and I do I work hard to develop a map of my students internal representation a lot of that's about questionnaires about an uh, analyze the, the accounting skills come in again you know analyzing their results um, what, what do these results mean yep. what what pattern of results have I seen like this before and what did that mean the student would do and then if I want a different outcome from that how, how do I what what changes do I need so that that's summer overview, which gets a, you know, a pretty big summary of things. Hmm. Um, so a few questions from that. I guess the first one will be, uh, can you describe what you're, I guess, talking about when you say internal representation? So what is that encompassing? I might have said it earlier. Right, so, uh, and in, I don't know, right, maybe I'll give you uh, an example of, um, Think of an elephant. Yep. So it's so you're going to create an internal representation. Now we we there's a few things we can start to look at that internal representation. And now is that something you can see? And then we'd say, look, does it is it is what you're seeing is that colour or is it black and white? Is it moving or is it still? Is it focused or is it unfocused? Uh, are there sounds that are associated with that? And uh, I like, to, is it the sound of your own voice or is it some other sounds? Is it the sound of, of the elephant? Is it the sound of people around? When you think about that inter that, that elephant, um, is it something you've seen, actually seen? You're remembering something you've seen. So is this a, something you've remembered or is it something 
you have created. Um, and then, you know, are there any feelings, in fact, that you have with that? And if you have feelings uh, as you think about that more, where, where are those feelings located? Like, is it a feeling in your stomach? You know, how do your arms feel? Is it about your breathing? Now, um, thinking of an elephant is probably not going to raise up, you know, too many of those things. It's a pretty innocuous thing to think about. But there's a whole host of other internal representations who we could create. And they're, and they're shaped by, you know, what, why do we inter, internally represent stuff? Um, to, to be a little simplistic uh, about this, um, you know, there is some research that suggests something like at any, uh, any one time, we've got about 7,000 whiteboards of information um, rushing towards us, and we can process about one of those. Now, yeah, you know, is that uh, accurate? Maybe, maybe not, but it gives you a pretty good impression. It's probably, it probably is something like that. And clearly, we can't process all of that. We're going to delete stuff. We're going to distort stuff. We're going to generalize. So it, it's worth understanding um, what's going to, what, what, what it's going to influence those choices when we delete, distort, or generalize. And um, for, for instance, I could find in, say, um, in a unit I have, if someone has done the unit before and not passed, they'd be more inclined to have some type of unresolved negative emotion associated with studying that. So they could get on, look at the materials, and they could have a pretty crappy feeling in their stomach straight away. You know, I've done this before. I remember it was hard work, didn't pass. So they're all the things that impact on the, you know, the internal representation. And so we need to think, right, what can I do to overcome that? How can I find, firstly find out about it? And what can I do to overcome that? I've gone so long now, I forgot what the question was. Do you ask me to explain a bit more about internal representation? Yeah. So in, in that case with the student that's, failed before and they have a bad feeling about the course um, have you I guess found ways to help that student instead get better feelings about the course so clearly in a case like that um, it's going to require um, some one-on-one -on -one, yeah. uh, probably with the student to get them you got to get them through that 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 first blockage so you know, what's going to get that through? And, and often people get through the blockage, get a bit of confidence. Um, and that's where some, you know, uh, game theory or something probably comes through. You think about, you know, games you might play on um, a, an iPhone or a computer or whatever. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff there about feedback. You're getting positive feedback all the time in, yeah. in little bits of things. So... I've also worked more and I, and I found this from something I set up an instant uh, feedback practice set. Uh, practice sets are pretty common accounting tool. And, but part of that feedback was just the student would get a right answer and the cell would turn green. Now, you know, students report that that can actually be very motivating. Um, hmm. you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not confident about something and you think you're not going to go very well at, and all of a sudden you do something and you get it right. And that's, well, that's pretty good. Cell's gone green. You do something else and you get it right. And you start to get 
you know, some of that motivation to progress, right? I'm getting these cells turning green. When they turn green, I know I've got it right. I know I'm on the wrong track as opposed to getting no feedback. Well, where am I going with this? Is this the right thing I'm doing? You know, mm. I've, I've had a bit of a guess and I've got to wait and work through this whole thing and get to the end before I find out the answer. Or worse still, um, you know, you might have to write an assignment, submit the assignment and then get the feedback two weeks later, three weeks later, four weeks later. Um, so they're, they're all things that impact on the, um, the internal representation that people will have. Yeah, so that positive reinforcement sort of like Pavlov's dogs, they started salivating when they heard the bell because every time they heard the bell, they got food. Yeah, so I'd like that... say um, a, be a better a better analogy in today's world would um, be Cheks and Mahali. I don't always get that pronunciation right. And uh, my daughter recently told me I had it wrong, uh, so I have to go back and have a look, but he, he's come up with a concept of flow. Yep. Um, and yeah, that, that'd be worth looking at if you're an academic for getting people in the flow. But part of the characteristics of flow is that people know what outcome they're after. They know what they need to do to get that outcome. What they need to do needs to be a little bit challenging, but it needs to be achievable. And one of the big things there is they're getting constant feedback that they're on the track. So if they're, if they're, they need to get constant feedback that they're getting towards their goal. And, and, and there's clearly a number of other things in that, but, but that will help people get into a state of flow and a state of flow um, is when you're working at your most effective. And I, you know, I don't know if you've found sometimes when you're getting in there and you know, you're, you're writing a program to work stuff out and, and things are just starting to come to you. And you're starting to work and this is, things are working. And then, you know, you probably even get a bit like me after a cup of coffee. Um, yeah, you get a bit of a buzz. Just right, oh, this is good. I'm making progress here. The mind's working. Or you might be in a great discussion with someone else that um, is on a similar wavelength and maybe working in a similar area and you're getting great ideas. So they're, they're probably another example of flow. Um, so... I guess back to the topic of teaching, I think I recall you saying once that, well, I can't remember if this is a real memory or not, that sometimes you'd stand in a particular spot in the room every time you needed to say something that was very important. Well, that's, I guess that's a hypnosis NLP um, related to anchoring. Yep. So I'd have a spot in the room where I'd try and build it up as a positive thing um, so I, I'd often, you know, try, try, got to find something early on in a, in a trimester that's going to be interesting and then maybe have a joke, but the joke needs to be funny or at least not funny first go, funny at some stage. And you'd, you'd want to walk to the room and, but also do more than that because, uh, you know, there's uh, anchorings, uh, yeah, has some, com some complexities to it. Get to that spot. Um, and get that so that I've got a much better chance of people being focused on what I've got to say. So if I've ever got something quite important to say, I will go to that spot. Um, some other things I'll do and um, might be just going through the accounting cycle. 
So as I, especially early on when I talk about it, I will have a different spot in the lecture theatre where I talk about different parts of the accounting cycle. Um, and so I can, so if I go to one spot, um, students will know what's going to come. And yeah, is that effective? Um, that I don't necessarily know, but I've certainly got feedback from students um, uh, after an exam. So it was interesting, you know, I got some a question about the accounting cycle when I was able to just think of where you stood. Mm. In, in different places and I was able to know what the steps were and think about, hold on, I know what this step is, there's something before that. Um, but then uh, that, that started to happen less because then people moved on to the practice set and they just remember what they did in the practice set. So you, you could, but that, you could construct a very powerful lecture if you really did want people to learn something. Um, but it, it takes a fair bit of effort to think about um, how you construct everything, how you phrase it, how you go through, um, for instance, to pick up people who have a different um, representational systems bias. You know, are they, are they a bit more um, auditory digital, which would be accountants? Are they a bit more visual or a bit more kinesthetic or just more auditory? And so you can... Um, you know, construct a lecture in a way to pick everyone up on yep. the way through. And you could think about even for that matter, uh, putting in, uh, we're, we're using some of the concept of in, embedded commands. So again, the really important stuff, you could help people sink into in their unconscious of the stuff you really got to know. But the amount of time uh, it would take to set things up like that, um, would be a long time and that's one of the challenges you need need a real lot of students to make an effort even for one lecture yeah like that is is that the kind of thing like is that the kind of thing say a magician would do so would they perhaps be because they do it all the time they'd be very good at that kind of thing and it would almost become natural for them to well, incorporate if you, if, that if you're a pre like there, there were um probably early in my career, I did a, um, some more presentations um, and there were a couple there that I did invest a considerable amount of time in getting just right. And you know, I always look forward to delivering those. Um, I, you know, I don't know exactly how a magician might work. You know, I, could, I know the really basic magicians, but they seem to be getting cleverer and cleverer. Um, but I, I could have like, like, well, clearly they'd practice their shows a lot. Um, you know, it's that if they, they're, well, um, musicians probably are big users of, we talked about the internal representation. Um, you know, they know that people can't absorb everything. Yep. And so distraction becomes a very powerful tool. Yep. Uh, there is a pretty famous, um, uh, um, experiment I, I, and they've probably seen videos of it on YouTube that dealt with um, people not seeing things you know and, uh, filling, filling up you know, all they've got to learn stuff you know filling up all their incoming receptors let's say 
and then a gorilla's walked across the back of a stage. Well, mm, not really yep. a gorilla. Someone dressed up as a gorilla, and no one saw the gorilla. Yeah. Like, um, so you know, I guess magicians. Um, if if you're not trying to hide a gorilla, if you're just trying to hide something much smaller, I'm sure magicians would use use that. Yeah, I think I know the video you're talking about. Because um, there's there's definitely one where they say count how many times the people dressed in white pass the basketball, and there's also yeah. a team dressed in black. Yeah, they're also passing a basketball, and the gorilla walks straight past. And yeah, yeah, you just don't see it if if you're not yeah. expecting it. No, and that's it because we can only absorb so much information, and it. Uh, I again, this is how time has been squashed out. But I used to uh, give students an exercise early on: is just put up a, a photo with, well, not a photo, a, um, a diagram, and it might have 50, 60, 80 different things on it. And I would say, um, right, how many red things were there? Yep. And um, yeah, the bulk of people wouldn't even get to the third of them. Um, but then if you just put that up and, and, and then, cause they then they're, I think it's called the reticular activating system. So once they're reticular, reticularly activated to look for red, you put that up again for the same amount of time. Yeah. You take it down and they'll get set at least seven or eight out of 10 and maybe a lot more. Cause I'll just go and count all the red things. Um, so it's, you know, it's where we direct our attention. And uh, yeah, and then if well, I then asked them how many blue things were there, they'd still have no idea. Yeah, cool. Um, so something you said a bit earlier. So I guess we'll go towards your academic research now. Uh, you mentioned you're looking at what was it? Other metrics to look at, such as um, hours worked, exercise done in the week. I was curious with the exercise, what you found in terms of, say, a business's uh, performance correlating with the exercise that was done by its employees. Oh, yeah. We're getting, uh, um, so the, the, uh, so that work we did with financial planners. So it's important to appreciate that's in the context of people whose job was not physical. So if we did this with um, bricklayers, mm. it's probably not going to be true. Yeah. Uh, but we, and, and again, it's who, who do you measure and how do you measure the outcomes? So all we measured it with was with the owners. So we're, yeah, they're all owner operated businesses that were, we were working with. Um, and the benchmark we set was at least three times a week yep. for at least 20 minutes um, to be what they perceived to be in the aerobic zone. Yep. Now, and um, so very clearly those that exercised, um, there was a high correlation with profitability. I, you know, I'm going back a long way now. I can't remember the exact amount but it was something like then for the hours they worked about $20 an hour. It was a really significant figure. Wow. So those that exercise more now, well, I shouldn't say worth the correlation. Now there's something very important to bear in mind here. 
was that was relationship, but not necessarily causal. Yep. So it could be that those were making money and could then afford to get the exercise done. They could mm -hmm. afford to employ more people. They could afford to have the time off. They could afford to buy the good bike. They could afford the gym membership so they could train all the time. So um, it, it was not necessarily um, a, a direct causal relationship, but uh, yeah, I do remember one person pretty clearly or one not group of people who uh, really took that advice on board and changed the, um, yeah, really um, increased their exercise. And I've got a few thank yous from them uh, many years later still of how that, yeah, changed their business, changed their thinking. Um, so, well, yeah. I guess that case study is kind of a good indicator that it is partially due to the exercise as well, since they yeah. changed and the change came with it. Yeah. So uh, I guess as researchers, we would say um, that's clearly a correlation, not a causation, but it's also clearly an area that is absolutely worth more research mm. in terms of, and look, I, I, I think there's probably been a fair bit of research done, not think exactly so. yeah. the, the way we did that. I think, I think it's pretty well established of the benefit of exercise in, in the way of your thinking, in your general health for being productive, in your sleeping, uh, in the way you learn. Um, but I think we all know from our uh, own experience, um, you know, I think my best time of thinking is the walk I have after I go for a run. So, yeah, you know, you go out for a run, uh, well, I struggle a bit, you know, you get you, the, you're breathing and you can think pretty clearly when you first start, but um, pretty soon into that exercise, your body's starting to consume all your oxygen. Um, and again, here's something I don't necessarily know to be true, those things you read, but, you know, it's, it's um, that the brain's sort of about 2% of the body weight and, um, can consume 20% of the oxygen. So if you're starting to take oxygen for something else, the brain runs out of it and your uh, yeah, decision-making is not as good. But as soon as you stop, you're not using that oxygen for something else, all the oxygen comes rushing back into your brain, probably a lot of fresh bl blood with fresh oxygen. Um, and that's, uh, I love taking it. Well, I don't love, I hate taking my phone, but I, I know the importance now of having my phone when I go somewhere, because yeah, you're out, uh, you, you're, yeah, you're walking, you've got all those good thoughts and you need to trap them then because you can have those good thoughts and don't always remember them. And, and there, um, that also, um, you know, there was a mathematician, Poincaré. Again, I'm not on uh, Henri Poincaré. He was a sort of contemporary of Einstein. Um, and again, better check the, the pronunciation. Uh, and he thought he was pretty creative. And he wrote a paper that talked about, now I've got to remember these things now, but I think he wrote a paper that talked about the stages of the creative process and also the st stages of learning. And 
it, it was something stage one was preparation. So you know, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to discover anything unless you do a lot of work. So you put the work in, you make the effort. The next stage, he said, was incubation. So there's got to become a stage where you divorce yourself from what you're doing. Mm. Uh, it might be you meditate, you play the guitar, you listen to music, you go for a run or a swim or a bike ride or, or you know, or some exercise, and that's incubation. Because he said only in incubation can the important thing happen, and that's illumination. So uh, illumination's when the idea comes. You know, you've been working on something, your un un unconscious mind continues to work on it. Uh, maybe it's not in your conscious space and your unconscious mind comes up with a solution and it presents this to you. Um, now, this is consistent with stuff like, and whether or not it's true, that Newton and the apple fall in on him. Um, you know, he's just out away from things and thinking about it. Who, who was it that come up with the great theory of when he was having a bath? Um, um, I think that might be the story of Archimedes and his Eureka moment. So, in summary, um, although there's some debates regarding the details, uh, the king at the time put Archimedes in charge of finding out if the goldsmith was being fraudulent and not using pure gold for the crown. Um, and Archimedes couldn't think of a way to do this. But then, when he was getting in the bath, he noticed the water was being displaced by his body. Uh, giving him a way to measure the volume of these strangely shaped objects, and therefore the density of the crown, um, as the gold should be more dense than the other metals. So he then supposedly ran down the street naked, yelling Eureka, um, which roughly translates to, I've found it. Well, well they're, they're, they're again things that, you know, if Poincaré is correct, they, they sort of fit with that. You know, you, you, you've, all these people have done the work, then they've got away from what they're doing. They're out doing something else. And then the idea comes to him. Um, and then there's um, one more stage after that. He said the four stages. And that was validation. And the validation is, you, well, you've come up with this great idea. Then you've actually got to put it in place and see if it works. Or you might not even put it in place, but you've got to do... Yeah, you got it. Is this a good? Is this really a good idea? This, this, what I thought was a great idea, is it actually feasible? Um, but that's that's probably relevant for learning generally. You think about, you just want to learn something. You like, you, you know, we all should know that you you don't study right up until just before the exam. You know, you got to get your study done the night before so you can sleep on it. Or if there's something you're trying to learn, you know, you put the work in. You make the effort on the work and then you have a break from it. And then you probably come back and say, have I got this? Thank you all for listening to this episode of NI in the Future. Brent and I will continue our discussion in the next episode by discussing Brent's current research in accounting and sustainability. We'll touch on topics of big data, the impact of COVID on our society then we'll hear about Brent's early career. In the final episode of this three-part interview, we will then discuss the importance of soft networks and clusters of competence before diverging onto the topic of creativity and an interesting meeting technique called the six thinking hats. 
If anything from today's episode sparked an idea or you'd like to find out more, I'd love to hear about it. So leave a comment on YouTube, find me on Twitter, or visit anionthefuture.com to get in contact. I look forward to you joining us on the next episode. So, keep an eye on the future for when it comes out.